BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Did his mother know that Elvis would die young? She talked about assassins. She talked about the life, the life of a star of this type and magnitude. Isn't this life structured to cut you down early? This is the point, isn't it? There are rules, guidelines. Now I have a feeling about mothers. Mothers really do know. The folklore is correct. Hitler adored his mother. He was the first of Clara's children to survive infancy. Elvis and Gladys liked to nuzzle and pet. They slept in the same bed until he began to approach physical maturity. They talked baby talk to each other. Hitler was a lazy kid. His report card was full of unsatisfactories. Gladys worried about his sleepwalking. She lashed out at any kid who would bully him. Gladys walked Elvis to school and back every day. She defended him in street rumbles. But Clara loved him. Spoiled him. Gave him the attention his father failed to give him. Elvis confided in Gladys. He brought his girlfriends around to meet her. Hitler wrote a poem to his mother. He took piano lessons. Made sketches of museums and villas. When Elvis went into the army, Gladys became ill and depressed. Hitler is what we call a mama's boy. Elvis could hardly bear to let Gladys out of his sight as her condition grew worse. He kept vigil at the hospital. When his mother became severely ill... Hitler put a bed in the kitchen to be closer to her. Elvis fell he apart when Gladys died. He wept at the grave he and, and fell into a period of depression and self-pity. He talked their baby talk. For the rest of his life, Hitler couldn't bear to Gladys be near death Christmas decorations caused a because fundamental his mother shift had died near a Christmas tree. The king's worldview. Years later, Elvis began to withdraw from deep the remoteness. Hitler to enter a state of his own dying. Spartan quarters at Obersalzburg. He began to hear a buzzing in his left ear. Elvis fulfilled the terms of his contract. Excess. Deterioration, self-destructiveness, grotesque behavior. A physical bloating and a series of insults to the brain, self-delivered. His place in legend is secure. He bought off the skeptics by dying early, horribly, unnecessarily. No one could deny him now. His mother probably saw it all as on a 19-inch screen. Years before her own death. Thanks for indulging me with that rather long clip from the film, White Noise. 
You'll see it's so relevant to the themes of this episode. You heard the Elvis versus Hitler scholarly discussion between the Adam Driver and Don Sheedley characters. It's true and it's Jungian and it's Gnostic. Hitler and Elvis were overtaken by a warped image and imprinting of both the mother and goddess archetype. As Sheedley said, it's like the dice were loaded from the start. Elvis, and I do talk more in my upcoming book, was the eternal introvert, so he internalized the toxic feminine imagery. This allowed him to create better than the creator gods, but also poisoned his psyche to the point it took its toll on his body and sanity. Hitler, on the other hand, projected outward in a fury of creating a society that would entertain his neurosis, keep his projections safe at the expense of millions of lives. Fucking Nazis. They were Nazis, dude? Oh, come on, Donnie. They were threatening castration. Uh-huh. Are we going to split hairs here? I mean, say what you want about the tenets of National Socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. Of course, Elvis and Hitler's dichotomy is more complicated. But the point is that a warped or weaponized or wonky expression of the mother or goddess archetype can cause massive and needless damage individually or collectively. That our mothers are bus drivers. But no, they are the bus. See, they're the vehicle that gets us here. They drop us off and go on their way. They continue on their journey. And the problem is that we keep trying to get back on the bus instead of just letting it go. Elvis, the mama's boy who suffered from the psychological pain of lethal enmeshment didn't have the tools or breakthroughs to fully integrate his anima in a healthy way, even as he was the ultimate androgynous Hermes manifestation of modernity. As for Hitler, Jesus, I don't even want to go there. The badges on our cap, they've got skulls on them, hands. Are we the baddies? But we do have the tools and breakthroughs today. And yet we continue to warp, weaponize, and get wonkish to the mother and goddess expressions. From nature to societal roles. And here we are, like Elvis, ready to shit ourselves to perdition. And like Hitler, spearheading the destruction of civilization. Here we are in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. Here we are at the end of human consciousness, unless we for once figure out the collective and individual anima. See the mother and goddess archetype through a holistic and hermetic lens. Our God has no rules, only ceremonies to know him better, or no rules. That's always been the goal of this podcast, and nothing says mommy, daddy, abandonment, and identity issues like the myth of Sophia and her own Elvis-slash-Hitler son, the Demiurge. And lethal enmeshment, too, in that myth, which is basically helicopter parenting until a child dies mentally and emotionally. 
like Elvis, Hitler, and Yaldi Baldi. Any questions? Who are you? I'm the monster's mother. On this episode, we shall continue clearing the muddy waters of the goddess image with an incredible interview. Welcome Jack Shanky, who will be discussing his new book, Queen of All Witcheries, a biography of the goddess. From Kybel to Diana to Babylon, from ancient witches to modern Wiccans, Get ready to find the gnosis to clear your muddy, egoic waters and start tapping into the right divine feminine expressions before it's too late. Before Elvis and Hitler again and again and again destroy themselves and millions of other lives. I don't want to interrupt. I'll just get started on the apocalypse. But where are you? Some of you may ask perhaps accidentally entering the borders of the virtual Alexandria. Spastomy! This is madness! Aeum Bytnostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult, culture, and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I... Your host, Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring you the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. It's all fun and games until someone loses a third eye, and then it's just gnosis. Psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. You're drowning. I'm swimming. Let's continue finding the goddess, our individual and collective anima, before everything turns into the machine, my son. Paraphrasing Jung, if we do not make the unconscious conscious, then everything seems like fate. Everything seems, as the Don Sheedley character said, set in stone as soon as we're children. Going inward for the balance of our anima and animus, our inner god and goddess, our Christ and Sophia, is certainly a crucial way to overcome fate. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. The other... Oddly enough, is to see life like the movie White Noise, a cosmic absurdity that we must infuse with myth, magic, and meaning. Simple as that. Simple as that. There's an old Zen koan. goes like this. Everyone has two lives, and the second life begins the moment you realize that all along, you only had one. Reminds me of the famous story of Alice Roth in 1957. She was attending a Philadelphia Phillies game and was accidentally hit by a foul ball, which broke the poor grandma's nose. Being injured by a foul ball is not that rare in baseball, mind you. The issue is that while Roth was being carted off in a stretcher, another foul ball hit her. This one broke a bone in her knee. 
Both foul balls were caused by star outfielder Richie Ashbourne. What are the odds of this? How absurd! How do we make sense of this white noise? The dice were loaded from the start, and the universe is indeed absurd. If you find balance within you, however, you'll notice the ridiculousness of your life, a fate of the game of Saturn high above you. But you will also notice synchronicities, the advice of your ancestors, and your innate ability to bring more myth, magic, and meaning into the cosmic absurdity. You can help another Elvis and stop another Hitler. You can make new bonds and create better than the greater gods and their Karens and Katamites in the establishment. We understand life backwards, but it's got to be lived forwards. After all, in the baseball story, Ashburn visited Roth at the hospital and they both became lifelong friends. In the absurdity and violence of this universe, Animus and Anima, God and Goddess forces, can unite to bring so much love, so much healing, so much purpose. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope I'm making sense, but Jack will make more sense in our interview. So let's go there and dodge any destiny foul balls coming our way. But first, the second part of the white noise clip. This one focuses on the concept of the individual and the crowd, still about Elvis and Hitler. You'll see the difference, but it's obvious. The crowd is where death happens, while life happens with the individual, which is very Gnostic. However, Elvis in a crowd was always calling upon the dead of the past to his ancestors, to the slaves and exploited farmers of the South, to saints and lovers of ages gone by. He honored all of America's ancestors, regardless of their race or background. Hitler, in turn, was calling upon the dead of the future, like a Wotan is wont to do when it's time to pay the mass formation bill. You know what happened. Picture Hitler near the end, trapped in his Fuhrer bunker beneath the burning city. He looks back to the early days of his power when crowds came, mobs of people overrunning the courtyard, singing patriotic songs, painting swastikas on the walls. On the flanks of farm animals, crowds came to his mountain villa. Crowds came to hear him speak. Crowds erotically charged the masses he once called his only bride. Crowds came to be hypnotized by the voice, the party anthems, the torchlight parades. But wait! How familiar this all seems to us. How close to ordinary. Crowds come, get worked up, touch and press, people eager to be transported. Isn't this ordinary? We all know this. We've been part of those crowds. 
there must have been something different about these crowds. What was it? Let me whisper the terrible word. From the old English. From the old German. From the old Norse. crowds were assembled in the name of death. They were there to attend tributes to the dead. But not the already dead. The future dead. The living dead amongst us. Processions, songs, speeches, dialogues with the dead. Recitations of the names of the dead. They were there to see pyres and flaming wheels. Thousands of flags dipped in salute. Thousands of uniform mourners. There were ranks and squadrons, elaborate backdrops, blood banners, and black dress uniforms. Crowds came to form a shield against their own dying. To become a crowd is to keep out death. To break off from the crowd is to risk death as an individual. To face dying alone. Crowds came for this reason, above all others. They were there to be a crowd. This is the Aeon Byte interview. And with us, we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Jack Chanick to discuss his book, Queen of All Witcheries, A Biography of the Goddess. Jack, thank you very much for coming on Aeon Byte. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Pleasure is all mine. Yeah, as we talked before, really enjoyed your book. A good book, an important book that needed to be written or or pulled out of the Akashic records or the the world of ideas. And uh, yeah, the truth will set us free. Uh, it reminds me of William Faulkner, who said once, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. It's almost something that we need to always be tweaking and looking at. And it's a live thing. So great job on, on this book. And again, the audience will really enjoy it. But before we get started on your book, Jack, or it's actually included in your book, let's talk a little bit about yourself. How did you come to the goddess? And I know there is Ferris Bueller's Day Off somewhere in the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, this is um, this is a story with many parts, and the telling of it changes each time, just because, you know, there's sort of this feeling that, like, Every part of my upbringing and my life up until I really got into Wicca all sort of came together to allow for uh, the religious experiences that I have now. Uh, so Ferris Bueller is definitely a part of the story. Uh, this is a story that I tell right at the beginning of the book is that, um, you know, when I was in college, I went to a screening of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, and this was like a live summer screening in Bryant Park in New York City. And, uh, you know, full moon rose up over the city. This was in 2016. So um, this was a year that uh, there was a full moon on the summer solstice, which does not happen terribly often. It was an astronomically significant event. And I look at the sky as the moon is rising and I just have this vision of the goddess spread out across the sky. Uh, and that was, you know, if I have to pinpoint it, that is the moment that I really knew that 
goddess worship was what I wanted to be doing. But the story goes back farther than that. Um, I was raised in an aggressively non-religious household. My father was raised Catholic. He was bitter about that until the day he died. And so, you know, I grew up in this environment where religion was kind of for stupid people. Like spirituality <laughs> was, you know, something that was used to control the masses. Right. And um, there was sort of this expectation that if you were adequately intelligent and educated, that would just be not for you. And as I grew up, I increasingly realized that that just wasn't me. You know, I, I think fun, fundamentally you can put people under a microscope and there are two kinds of people. There are people who need spirituality and religion and the people who don't. Right. And much to my chagrin, I, I discovered that <laughs> I was one of the former. You know, I needed the mythology of it. I needed the ritual and the symbolism and the ecstatic dancing naked in the woods under a full moon sort of thing. Right. And so, you know, I left home for college and I started exploring, um, you know, trying to find my way around various sorts of uh, paganism and spiritual practice. And then around the time that I moved to New York City, um, I reached out to a Gardnerian coven and I've been with them ever since. Awesome. And thanks for sharing. Yeah. And you said you were raised Catholic at the same time you also discuss in your book, Jack, how uh, you might say a, a seed was planted in you when you give us your story of your Baba, who mm -hmm. was a Serbian Orthodox, and she really wanted you to be baptized. And somehow you saw the divine feminine in her, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, you know, uh, um, my great grandmother grew up in Milwaukee, um, and the church was such an important part of her life, right? The church was the source of, you know, all of the social organization in her life. So all of her family, all of her friends, everything was structured around the church, particularly by the time that she got, you know, into her late 80s, early 90s, um, at which point most of her friends and family were dead. She didn't have a lot of people left. And what she did have left was the church. And it was so important to her. And she sort of put her foot down and she said, he will be baptized before <laughs> I die. This is not up yeah. for discussion. <laughs> so we flew me out to Milwaukee for a weekend, splashed some holy water on me. Um, <laughs> I have a godfather who by this point has probably passed away. Uh, but at one point in time, I had a godfather who was wandering around somewhere in the state of Wisconsin. And my baptism is the only occasion that I ever met him. Oh, wow. um, but it was, you know, it was this ritual that was so important to her. And going there and doing that, um, it struck me as beautiful and significant, not so much for the ritual itself, uh, because Christianity has never really spoken to me, but for the feeling of connection to her, for the feeling of doing something that was so important to her, so important to my family on that side of the family, and this sort of feeling of being linked into a spiritual lineage that passed back through my maternal line back down the generations. And that was something really extraordinarily beautiful and powerful for me. Yeah, wonderful story. And again, throughout your book, it's great to see you share your challenges, your growths, your breakthroughs, as you yourself are in this eternal relationship with the goddess. I, I like, too, how, yeah, you were 
um, I'd say into uh, paganism or neo-paganism, but you didn't really uh, understood the power of magic until you were in college. And uh, as sometimes as some have said, uh, magic is the the last resource of the desperate. We don't go to <laughs> magic until we don't go to the witch at the end of the village, as Gordon White said, unless we're desperate. That's humankind, and you were desperate. You were being stalked by some guy, and you used a spell, and it worked, didn't it? And you were like, "Aha, this stuff works." Yeah, no, it's um, when I first reached out to the coven that I belong to now. Uh, I had a conversation with the high priestess of the coven, and one of the things we talked about was magic, where I said, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the ritual, I'm interested in the religion and the symbolism, I'm not sold on magic yet. I don't know how I feel about magic. And what she said has always stuck with me. She said, the reason that it's important to do magic is that it puts your ass on the line. Yeah. Because if you do a spell there is a result or there isn't. You either got what you were doing the spell for or you didn't. Whereas if you do a ritual to attain communion with your higher self and develop knowledge of the holy guardian angel or whatever, no one can ever tell you whether that ritual succeeded. No one can ever tell you whether you failed. But with actual, like with concrete practical magic, if you do a spell to get rid of someone who's stalking you, it either works or it doesn't. And you have to confront the possibility of failure in a very real and immediate way, but also really sincerely wrestling with that, putting yourself on the line like that uh, allows you to push forward in a much deeper way uh, and allows you to commit yourself to a practice much more wholeheartedly because you're not holding yourself back from it for fear that you know, you you might be bullshitting at all. And do you feel in spell casting that there's always a uh, is there a blowback or as long as you're sacrificing the right things and the right intention? What's your take on this? I know it's debated. It's been debated for decades in pagan circles, magic circles. A blowback for what? Well, for example, you uh, let's say you want to protect, like you said, you want protection for something, or you want. Uh, that job or whatever something has to be given it's not nothing is free in this universe energy doesn't just come out of nowhere yeah i mean i think i think there are different ways of understanding and approaching what's happening in magic um and there's certainly an idea that you can find that magic is sort of transactional uh that you have to give in order to get that's never really been my approach to magic. So my, my approach to magic uh, relies very heavily on sympathy, uh, on sort of sympathetic connections between things, and an understanding that uh, whatever is like a thing, whatever symbolizes a thing, is that thing. And so whatever you do to the thing that is like the thing, you end up doing to the thing itself. Uh, so there's there's less of a sense of, for me, uh, needing like an energetic transaction or anything like that. And it's much more a matter of just sort of drawing on these symbolic connections between things and then sort of allowing that to be the way through which you affect necessary change in the world. 
No, makes sense. And uh, how did you come to write Queen of All Witcheries? What was the process that took you there? Uh, I was mad that the book didn't exist, if the honest <laughs> uh, I, I Honestly, I would almost rather that someone else had written it, but no one did. Right. And, you know, I had, there, there was such a boom in pagan publishing in the 80s and 90s, and particularly publishing about the goddess. You had all these books that came out. And a lot of those books are really sort of beautiful and poetic, and they express a strong connection to the divine in the same way that I experience it. But those books are by now 30 or 40 years out of date. Mm -hmm. And for one thing, there are, I think, some historical claims that are made in those books that people were making in good faith when those books were written in the 80s and 90s. But our understanding of history and archaeology has changed over the course of the past couple of decades and is no longer reflected by the claims that are made in those books. Um, and likewise, I think there is particularly like a certain kind of feminist polemic that was very popular toward the end of the 20th century with the idea that women are inherently nurturing and soft and intuitive and gentle. And, you know, and, and there was this idea that that connected into the divine feminine. And that was why like the worship of the goddess was so important because we needed to restore those quote unquote feminine principles to the world. Um, and that was, that was an important set of talking points at the time that it was being used but it's really no longer reflective of the way that a lot of people understand feminism more broadly, but then specifically spiritual feminism um, is, is much leerier right now of this idea that there is an inherent way that women are versus the inherent way that men are. Uh, and I think that spills over into our understanding of the goddess, where our understanding of the goddess is no, no longer colored by that particular sort of highly essentialist vision of what womanhood is like. And so even though there are some really wonderful books that exist that were published a couple of decades ago, those books are in certain really important ways, no longer really reflective of uh, the way that goddess worship collectively understands history right now, the way that it understands feminism right now, and a couple of other things. And I just, I wanted to write a book that had that same reverence for the goddess that I found in these other books, but that I could give to someone without having to say, okay, look, all of the history is terrible. Skip the first three chapters, ignore all of the stuff about like ancient prehistory, but I promise there's something good in here. You know, like I, I, I wanted a book that I could hand to someone without going through a series of caveats. And so the, ultimately that's why I ended up writing this book. Glad you wrote it again, because yeah, it takes you on a great tour of uh, the idea of the notion of the goddess. And you, uh, again, it's all about the truth will set you free, dispelling and tweaking the past. But at the same time, uh, there was a even, I thought, an even stronger connection to the goddess after I, I read your book, because again, uh, history is always changing. As you write, just because something is not ancient doesn't mean it's not valid and has the same amount of power. So you would say that the, the good thing about your book is that you still can find uh, even more renewed ways in connecting with the goddess. The goddess is fine. 
Yeah, you know, um, at one point I had someone ask me, because a lot of the book, for those who are listening and haven't read it, uh, talks through the modern history of goddess worship. So uh, there was, uh, you know, this idea that there's a surviving cult of the one great goddess that has existed since prehistoric times, and it is unchanged up to the present day. And that is broadly not true. Um, But what I was really interested in was sort of setting aside claims about ancient history and thinking about the, the modern thinkers and movements and practitioners that shaped the way that we understand the goddess today. So starting in about the mid 19th century, looking at how we came to know the goddess as we think about her in the year 2023. And so there's there's a lot of history woven in with the devotion there. And as I was working on this book, someone asked me, like, doesn't this bother you? Doesn't this make you feel more doubtful of worshiping the goddess? Doesn't it make you feel like it's all made up? And my answer to that is no. I feel like uh, understanding the history of goddess worship in the modern world, understanding who this goddess is through the lens of like where she came from and how we got the language that we use to describe her. That to me only serves to strengthen the connection that I feel to her and the worship that I feel for her. Uh, because it's about really understanding who this goddess is, not as a means of discrediting her, but as a means of just getting to know her. The same way if you're getting to know anyone, you ask things about like, you know, what was your childhood like? Did you have any siblings? Where did you grow up? And knowing those things about the past helps to inform your understanding of the present and help you to form the relationship that exists in the present. Well said, and I would certainly agree. So let's uh, take a little journey of all these ideas and times that shaped the goddess and uh, gave us a lot of misconceptions, as you said, and sort of uh, obfuscated history or got the wrong archaeology and all that. But uh, it seems one of the, the main points, Jack, is the idea of the Victorian attitude. And as you write, and I agree, yeah, in the 19th century, a uh, European man, he really thought he was the top of the evolutionary ladder, the the apex, not even predator, but caretaker of the world and the other cultures and civilizations and animals and all that. It was a, yeah, pretty self-confident flex by Victorian people. But how did this Victorian attitude uh, come to shape the idea of the goddess? Yeah, there's a... Um... There's a poem by Rudyard Kipling, and it's an infamous poem. It's called The White Man's Burden. And <laughs> it's it's so racist. It's so <laughs> but to this day, there is like fierce, heated debate over whether Rudyard Kipling was just accepting this blind racist attitude or whether he was trying to like gently satirize it and poke fun at the ideas that were upholding empire. People can't agree, but the poem itself regardless is incredibly racist because it has this idea that like the white men of Western Europe are the civilized ones who have to bring civilization <laughs> to the rest of the world. And you know, uh, everyone needs to, to d- develop and evolve to become like Western Europe and the white man's burden, oh poor him, is that he has to guide everyone else up into the light. 
awful oh, lord <laughs> um, God. but this really was the attitude in 19th century europe and i mean most significantly for for a lot of our discussions here in 19th century britain uh there was this idea in particular that sort of rose with the development of theories about evolution in the natural sciences uh that was sort of met with this idea that society had evolved that society had progressed from a state of primitive and you know here the the quotes that i'm putting around that world word uh from from primitive society up to the most advanced and civilized society which was of course victorian england of course uh, yeah and part of what came along with that idea was this notion that society had developed along a linear track that it had started at point b and followed sort of a scientifically necessary set of steps in progressing along that track toward point B. Um, and one of those steps, a couple of you know, important anthropologists in the 19th century decided, had been the worship of a goddess. So you have, in particular, two main figures. One is the, uh, I think he was Swiss, um, anthropologist Johann Jakob Bachofen. Right. And the other is the British anthropologist James Fraser. And these two both have this idea, uh, Bachofen has it first, and then Fraser gets it from Bachofen, that the earliest religion was the worship of women and of motherhood, because right babies are born from women, and so women are seen as this sort of divine source of life. The ability to give life is this incredible power that women are supposed to have. And then that gets folded in with uh, the life-giving power of the earth, and you get the development of this sort of great mother earth goddess who is kind of still familiar in the popular imagination today, right? We talk about mother nature all the time. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and so these people had the idea that, you know, back in primitive times, people worshipped a goddess. And then slowly, as they became more civilized, they developed patriarchy, which was a good thing. <laughs> and having developed patriarchy, they started worshiping a god instead. And then uh, for Fraser, at least, James Fraser uh, was an atheist. And his real goal was to sort of push people even further out of religion altogether. And he was actually advocating for atheism. But what these people did sort of unintentionally in presenting this linear narrative about the development of human society and religion is they created this myth about there having been this idyllic sort of pre-civilized past where humans worshiped the original mother goddess. And as you start to see the pagan revival happening in the 20th century, you get a lot of people who take on that myth and decide to look back toward this imagined pagan past as inspiration for the religions and the goddess cults that they are building up in the modern world. Yeah, and it uh, definitely took fire. And uh, yeah, as I tell people, we uh, we really don't know. A hundred thousand years ago, we don't know what culture looked like. We don't know what society looked like. We don't know what gender roles were. I mean, the truth is, Jack, is we really don't know what these very ancient societies were like. We just don't know. We're just making it up. 
Yeah, and that's okay, right? We yeah. don't we don't need to know. Uh, we have some archaeological records, obviously depending on how, how far back you go. Uh, but ultimately, a lot of things get lost to history. That's the way that the passage of time goes, and this story that emerges in the 19th century about this ancient matriarchal cult is probably not true. We now have fairly good evidence to indicate that it's not true, but what a powerful myth. What, a, what an extraordinary source of inspiration. And I think what we find is the goddess is kind of already there, just waiting to be discovered. And even if there wasn't, in fact, a historical, you know, universal matriarchal goddess cult, the way that some of these people suggest that there had been, the, the, the blueprint is already there. And she's already kind of waiting for us to figure out how to worship her. And it's just that we start doing that a little bit later than you might be inclined to think if you're taking on this, this sort of ancient matriarchy theory. No, it makes sense. Uh, definitely makes sense. And again, it was a powerful story back then. And but also too, let's say with James Frazier, uh, it wasn't just his um, agenda, but also it should be known that the scholarship is sometimes just gets outdated, and that's normal with any yeah. scholarship. Things get tweaked, new archaeological. Uh, discoveries come about and everything's changing we don't have to be married to this stuff <laughs> yeah absolutely right like fraser did not set out to write bad history right. fraser did not sit down at his desk and say i'm going to make some stuff up and everyone's <laughs> going to be so deceived fraser was really earnestly trying to construct a theory of world religion given the evidence that he had at the time and as our understanding has progressed, as we have learned more about various cultures around the world, as we've learned more about the history and the archaeology, lots of Fraser's ideas have become outdated or discredited. But that doesn't mean that they're bad or useless. It just means that we have to read them through a particular lens and think critically about them whenever we're engaging, right? So, um, with, with all of these figures, everyone that I discussed throughout the book, they're sincere. They're, they're coming to this project and really doing their best. And we can now look back at their ideas and say, well, like some of those ideas don't stand the test of time, or it turns out that wasn't right. But that doesn't mean the ideas were bad. That doesn't mean the ideas should be ignored or forgotten or thrown in the dustbin of history. It just means that when we engage with those ideas, we need to put on our critical thinking caps uh, and consider some of the context of where these ideas come from. Um, and you know, for all of the books that I that I talk about uh, in Queen of All Witcheries, for every text that I mention, like these are books that are worthwhile and that people, I encourage everyone to go read. Oh, yeah. uh, the, the Golden Bow is an enormous book, so maybe don't read that if you're not feeling <laughs> particularly brave. But like, you know, don't take my word for it. Go read these other people and see what they have to say about the goddess. Um, it's just that when you do that, keep in mind the context of when they were writing, what kind of information was available to them, and why we don't take everything they say at face value. 
Exactly. And I always advise people don't get into presentism, which is this idea that if we went back in time, would we be smarter or more moral or anything? I mean, people are very complex. You mentioned uh, Rudyard Kipling, but we can go with somebody like Blavatsky. In one part, she can say something that's very Victorian racist, but on the other part, she'll talk about how the Indians are the most advanced people spiritually in the world. And Crowley too, Crowley can say something completely racist in one book, but in the other one, he's talking about equality and the brotherhood of man. So that's the other thing too. Would you agree that understand that people are complex, they're trapped in their culture like we are today, and in a way they're doing the best they can. Yeah, people are flawed. This is, this is true of you and me just as much as it's true of Helena Blavatsky. Um, and none of us are fully capable of escaping our biases, right? We, we all have them and they're invisible to us. That's the nature of a bias. Mm-hmm. And I think that doesn't necessarily excuse, you know, or exculpate uh, harmful attitudes and actions by people in the past, right? Like racist things are still racist, even if they happened 150 years ago. But it does mean that you have to engage with figures in the past with the understanding of who they were and sort of like it, there, there's context and things are complicated. And people have complicated legacies. You know, Aleister Crowley, there are things about him there that are extraordinary and wonderful. Uh, and he was in many ways a prophet and a poet. Yeah. Uh, and in other ways, he was a misogynist and he was racist. And both of those things can coexist at the same time because people are complicated. Um, and and the the good things don't excuse the bad things, but neither do the bad things uh, make the good things worthless. And it's just a matter of sort of taking the past with all of its complexity and not letting ourselves fall into a reductive trap of wanting a facile, straightforward story where like, you know, these are the people who got it all right and these were the people who got it all wrong because no one got it all right. Nope, and nobody will nobody will ever do that. I mean, we'll we'll be judged by our descendants, right? They might say, why didn't uh, you guys fight harder for animals or the environment or this? And we're like, well, Jack and Miguel, we're kind of, you know, we have things going on. We did our best. (laughs) Well, and that's as it should be, right? Like, I hope, I deeply, sincerely hope that 150 years from now, people are not viewing the world through the same lens that we view it through now. I hope that our perspectives have changed by then. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, because that, like, that's the nature of the thing that we do as people. We're always changing and moving forward and, and striving to be better. And I hope we haven't reached the end of it. Agreed. And uh, yeah, But now focusing on the goddess, do you feel that perhaps or... What's your take on the idea that there was really a goddess in a way in the context of this sort of uh, supreme, salvific, uh, uh, encompassing divine feminine that wasn't just in charge of 
some part of heaven or the world or wasn't Mrs. Male God in Olympus or all that. And I mean, some examples I would say are obviously Kybele, the great mother, Isis in her Hellenistic incarnation, um, Artemis, especially in Turkey, was just very, very supreme type of being. Do you think we can look at some of these goddesses and say these are really closer to the template of the modern goddess. They were they were really the great mothers, the the goddess with a capital G, if you would. Yeah, it's so first off, like obviously unquestionably, there were goddesses in the ancient world. There were countless goddesses in the ancient world. And um, some of them are quite similar to the way that we talk about the goddess today. You've already pointed out Isis, uh, who has a great deal in common with the, the goddess that we know today. And we see lots of figures over the course of the 20th century really drawing on the imagery of Isis in performing rituals to the modern goddess. Um, the goddess Diana is another very similar one, um, similar in the sense that she has that sort of big, expansive, kind of all-encompassing oomph about her. Uh, there, there certainly are. I think the thing that it's most important to keep in mind is that fundamentally, people 4,000 years ago, we're not that different from people now. And part of what that means is that just as there are a plurality of perspectives on religion now, so too was there a plurality of perspectives on religion in the ancient world. And some people probably didn't feel a great depth of religious sentiment at all. Some people probably were incredibly religiously devoted. Uh, some people probably thought of their gods, I don't know, as comforting stories or as like superheroes or even just as like particularly powerful people who lived on top of that mountain over there who you could maybe like, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I'll scratch <laughs> your back if you scratch mine. Here, have an offering of ox fat. Now, can I please have that boat that I was hoping for? Um, and then other people experienced the gods as these big sort of transcendent religious mysteries that are impossible to put into words. And the whole gamut of religious experience existed back then the same way that it does now. So as part of that, of course, there were goddesses in the ancient world who were like the thing that we're describing now, who were worshipped in ways that were similar to the ways that we worship now and with the kind of feeling that we have when we worship the goddess now. That is not something that sprung up out of nowhere. That's always existed. That said, I think that when we talk about the goddess today, um, usually when we talk about her, there's a pretty particular iconography that we have. We associate her with the earth, with the moon, oftentimes with motherhood. Sometimes people will talk about her as a triple goddess, maiden mother crone. She's associated with magic and spell casting. She's associated with creativity and the arts. And like, and all of this coalesces to form a very like particular and a unique figure. And I at least don't find anyone in the ancient world who is exactly like that goddess. I find lots of goddesses who resonate, who feel similar to me, who feel like, you know, if I, if you threw me back in time and I were trapped in the ancient world and I had to find someone to worship, 
to, to scratch that itch, I would go and worship Isis or Kibale or Astarte, and I would get that same oomph out of it. Right. Um, but I, I think that the specific way we talk about the goddess now, even though she has a lot of resonance with deities who existed in the ancient world, the language that we use to describe her now is unique to the modern day. Hmm. How would you say it's unique? Because I'm trying to think here. I mean, obviously, at some point, the philosopher's God came in and the the Eastern idea of the ultimate consciousness came in. So that's who God became, right? And I don't know if you see it like, okay, here's obviously some something I study a lot is Gnosticism. And you have figures like bar below who's considered the first emanation of consciousness it's as far up as we can get to understand what the this the font of existence of being is or uh something or the valentinians talked about how the the font of all existence was this being called silence who was female and that's where everything came out. Are you saying that's what we're we're looking today more at the goddess closer to the philosopher's god or Shakti, the first principle of God, or what am I missing? No, I think what I'm saying is because what, what you're saying is that there's a transcendent thing that that is right. not constrained by time, right? There's there's a transcendent divinity. And that I'm absolutely on board with. I agree with you, no question. What I'm saying is. I don't just worship transcendent divinity because transcendent divinity by, by nature can't be grasped by our limited consciousness. Exactly. Right? Like transcendent divinity is so much bigger than me that I don't even begin to know where to access it. And so the, the way that I reach out to that transcendence is through a goddess who is a moon goddess, an earth goddess, a goddess of witchcraft, who is associated with the changing of the seasons and the ebb and the flow of the tides, who has a very particular iconography. And that goddess, like that's, that's not the god of the philosophers, that's not Shakti, that's not even Isis, because Isis has her own particular iconography. Um, so what I'm expressing here is something a little bit more of a firm polytheism, like a harder polytheism. And ultimately that theology is up to each individual person. People will, will differ. But at the very least, the, the thing that I hope that um, everyone can agree on is like the, the real, the specifics of the iconography of the goddess that we talk about today. Like in that combination, all of those things brought together in that way like that's a modern phenomenon. That's a, that's something that we don't find in the ancient world. No, that makes perfect sense. And in your view, would this goddess have, um, I don't know how to say it, a shadow side? And let me back up, uh, Jack, as many have known on this podcast, I had this call at the beginning of summer to follow Artemis. And I started, uh, well, following Artemis, doing... Uh, rituals in the woods and studying her and experience her experience her her and putting her in my uh my devotions and she basically consumed me and again I had no choice it was a call that came to me and it's still going on but what I realized is that Artemis is so she's got a really intense dark side that i can't even describe and it's the first time in really my existence i understood what it meant to be terrified of a deity 
uh, because I saw her encompassing nature and the universe all at once, uh, dark light, uh, life, death, everything. That's how powerful she manifested in your life. Would you say that could be applied to the goddess in your view, or is it, do you have to get a little more granular for this sort of uh, yin shadow thing? <laughs> oh, unquestionably. The gods, however we understand the gods, whatever we understand them to be, the gods are bigger than us, and there's something terrifying about that, right? The, the, the gods are not just sugar and spice and everything nice. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, I, I think Artemis is a really wonderful example of this because, you know, we have everything that she's associated with, you know, the moon and the forest and, uh, you know, chastity and isn't this all so nice, but she is also <laughs> the goddess who turned Acteon into a stag and watched him ripped apart by his own hounds, mm -hmm. right? There, there's a wildness about her. There's a danger about her. And I think that's true of all gods, really. I, th I think that anything that rightly deserves to be called a god has to have that terrible aspect to it, it has to have that thing that, that kind of bowls you over and strikes you with awe and wonder and just a little bit of fear. Um, because we live in a great big scary world and the gods are an expression of that great big scary world. They're they're a part of it. They're a source of it. What you know, whatever your cosmology is. But like, if your gods aren't great and big and scary, then they're not really of this world. Well said. Yeah. Sometimes, and I know I've gotten in trouble. I I tell modern Gnostics and neo pagans is like, look, uh, if you're gonna all you all you want from your goddess is sort of a non-Christian version of the Virgin Mary, it's not gonna work out for you. You're kind of in the same trap, wouldn't you believe? <laughs> you really haven't left the stadium that you wanted to leave. Yeah, it, you know, you you gotta you gotta be willing to open yourself up to a divinity that is not always what you want it to be. And I think, especially for those of us who worship gods who are closely connected with nature, nature is a rough place sometimes, you know? Oh, yeah. uh, and, and you gotta be able to find the divine in that and to let it be beautiful and terrible at the same time. Yep, uh, agreed. As Joseph Campbell said, you got to embrace the beauty and the horror, the misterio tremendo, the misterium fascinante. That is a, that is true wisdom. And in your book too, Jack, you do spend a lot of time talking about the rising and dying godman and how the goddess plays such a role in this, whether it's uh, Cybele, Kybele and Addis, Isis and Osiris, Ishtar and Tammuz, Aphrodite and Adonis. What did uh, what would you say that the Victorians get wrong in really promoting and spreading this uh, very ancient myth? Yeah, well, so the this myth comes into modern goddess worship uh, via James Fraser, whom we've talked about here. And again, Fraser was an atheist. Fraser's goal was to discredit Christianity and to move Victorian society collectively into an era of atheism. 
And so he introduces these ancient myths of Aphrodite and Adonis, uh, Ishtar and Tammuz, Kiblai and Addis, uh, Isis and Osiris, and he uses them as a way of trying to discredit the Christian myth of the resurrection. He uses them as a way of trying to say, hey, look, this Jesus guy that you're all so excited about, actually, he's not that original. It's been done before. <laughs> he's just Osiris in new clothes. Right. And I think that the thing that Fraser missed is that it doesn't matter whether the myth is new because it's a powerful myth. And, and this, this symbolism of dying and returning, not just once, right? Not just as something that happened at one point in history, as with the Christian myth of the resurrection, but as something seasonal, as we watch the, the earth around us die every year and then come back to life every year. And we reap and we sow and we reap and we sow. And this constant ebb and flow of life, that's extraordinary. And like, I, I really don't care if James Fraser says that that's a bullshit myth because <laughs> I can look out my window right now and I see the first yellow leaf of fall. It's gonna be a long time before fall comes. It's hot. But I see the first yellow leaf and I know that it's coming. I know that that death and rebirth is just constantly happening in the world around me. And that's a mystery. And that's, a, that's a, something that I want to devote myself to religiously. Yeah. And the mystery happens in so many levels, inner, outer, cosmic, everything, if you would. And I agree with you, uh, Jack. You talk about in your book how you grew up in the Sierra Nevada mountains so it was just dry, more or less the same weather. Or, and I was the same. I was the same way too. I, I for a long time I lived in southern Texas. So when spring would come, I was like, well, I can't tell the difference. Everything's still green, you know. <laughs> B BFG, big fucking or BFT, big fucking deal. And uh, but when I moved to northern Illinois, like you moved to New Jersey, I was like, my God, spring has power. My God, you really feel it, don't you? Yeah, well, and it's also, you know, it's, I was thinking about this just the other day, because we had, we had winter where I grew up, we had uh, winter, we had snow, but it wasn't that same, like, constant, gray, depressing, like, will this ever end, that feeling of, <laughs> That we feel in February, right? Uh, exactly. Like, February in Nevada is actually pretty nice. It's, it's cold, but the sun is out and shining, and, you know... You still have the pine trees around. There aren't a lot of, of deciduous trees that have lost their leaves. And it doesn't hit you the same way. You don't feel like you're journeying through the underworld. New Jersey in February feels like the underworld. It feels <laughs> like hell. And yeah. you are passing through hell on your way up out, returning to the world of light and life. And when it finally comes, it is a revelation. And that is so beautiful. You know, I, I um, when I moved to uh, the East Coast, I swore that I would never again live somewhere that didn't have the full force of all four seasons, because it's just so important to me to feel that cycle. 
Yeah, I agree with you. It's incredible. It's a, it's it's a journey, like you said, into the underworld with Orpheus and all these other gods. You really understand. Really, uh, you get some cosmic vibes uh, when you do these things, and you're in the moment and with the seasons. Um, and uh, some another book you cover, and this is not in Victorian. Well, it is Victorian England, I suppose. But that's the 1899 book, the American by Charles Godfrey Leland on Diana, the Queen of Witches, and in his book, The Gospel of Witches, about this monthly meeting of the witches, La Tregunda. And, uh, uh, and of course, it's got a great story. And this is something that I have just recently heard about. Shame on me, but I'm very interested. But you don't think it's true, or what's the latest scholarship on this? I mean, look, I'm I'm always skeptical of these sorts of claims, right? Like, oh, yes, you know, there's a surviving cult of witches in <laughs> northern Italy, and no one has ever heard from them before or since. Uh, and there's, you know, that said, like, it ultimately doesn't matter whether the story was true, as, as is the case with so much of what we've talked about here today. Yeah. Right? Like, whether the, the history of the group of witches that Charles Godfrey Leland claimed to discover is true or not, the gospel itself is this beautiful piece of literature that is a revelation of the goddess uh, Diana and of the goddess and her connection to witchcraft. Uh, I think like my personal take on the, the gospel of the witches is that I think that there is some stuff in there that is probably really genuine Italian folk magic that had been passed down. Uh, and I think a lot of that is also embellished with some literary additions. Um, and that's, you know, that's okay. But this is a book that was so influential in the development of the modern witchcraft revival. And to this day, a lot of people who practice witchcraft call themselves witches are drawing inspiration from the Gospel of the Witches. Um, it's a short book. It's an easy read, uh, absolutely worthwhile to read. I think for anyone who like reads Queen of All Witcheries and is interested in exploring some of these primary sources that I talk about in the book, The Gospel of the Witches is a really fabulous place to start because it's so short, it's so easy to read, and it's so interesting and practical. And, uh, you know, it has this beautiful story about uh, time in sort of the Middle Ages, where the peasants of Italy were suffering, they were being oppressed by their feudal lords, and Diana sees their suffering and sends her own daughter to teach them witchcraft. And witchcraft is the art of rising up against the oppressor as taught by the goddess. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a powerful story. So we will have this on the show notes, Jack, but for those listening on audio, uh, where can people find out more about you and where should they go to get Queen of All Witcheries or whatever you would like to promote? Yeah, you can buy Queen of All Witcheries uh, through your local bookstore. If they don't have it, talk to them and they'll probably be happy to order a copy in for you. If you don't have a bookstore nearby, uh, you can buy it online uh, directly through Llewellyn or through resources like bookshop.org or Amazon. Uh, I am online at, uh, I, the, the main place I'm online is my blog, Jack of Wands, W-A-N-D-S, tarot.wordpress.com. 
Uh, I'm also on YouTube under my name, Jack Chanick. You can just search for me. I'm the only one. I pop right up. Uh, and you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Jack of Wands. So I'm kind of all over the internet. Um, I'm the only one with my name. So if you just Google me, usually you should be able to find me pretty easily. But thank you so much for having me on, Miguel. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Again, uh, recommend the book for anybody, regardless uh, where you are in your journey. You'll find something valuable and really appreciate your time, Jack, and good luck with everything. Thank you so much. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. Jack is a jack of all witch trades, and his gnosis is much needed. In our second part, Jack will discuss whether Diana was a witch or witch goddess. Jack will discuss Margaret Alice Murray and Dion Fortune, as well as the contributions of Aleister Crowley to the modern goddess. You know he's going to cover Wicca. Jack will share about his visit to Witchland in Spain, more of his mystical experiences with the goddess, and some of the rituals from his book, and much more. So please become a member for the full witchery. It's only $6.99 a month for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord channel for AB Prime members and high-level Patreons. If you find value in this content, please help grow this Red Pill Cafeteria. You can help in the form of a one-time donation on Stripe or the US Mail or even crypto. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip or you can tip on any YouTube show. There's always a merch store and a wish list if you want to support there. And consider the Finding Hermes program, where we have monthly exclusive meetings and presentations, with many past guests hanging out there for high-octane gnosis. I also have a one-on-one -on -one tier if you want to talk every month about Gnosticism or other heresies, or discuss healing modalities or addiction recovery. If you need help with any of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. <laughs>